Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a podcast brought to you by the Triad Network. This podcast is designed to share trending topics occurring within the world and our communities and bring them a behavioral and mental health perspective. Welcome to Behavioral Health Today. I'm your host, Dr. Graham Taylor. My guest today is Sarah Olivo. Sarah has been a licensed clinical psychologist for over two decades, having received her doctorate degree from Boston University. She also served on faculty at NYU Center and Wheel Cornell Medical Center. Sarah is the head of Lumate Academy, the training and educational arm of Lumate Health, and co-hosts the College is Fine, Everything's Fine podcast that aims to empower college students with essential CBT skills. We're excited to have Sarah with us today as we discuss OCD, anxiety, and exposure therapy. Sarah, nice to have you here. Welcome. Thank you. One thing they did not in- include in that is I have not had the podcast training that you have had. This voice is podcast voice. It's like, were you born with this? It's almost well, too perfect. I'm you're jealous. You're very kind. You've got a great voice right <laughs> back at you. So I'm looking for, I, I, you know, I haven't had a chance to listen into your podcast, but I like the title. Just, well, let's just do this for a second. College is fine. Everything is fine. That's a curious mm-hmm. name for a podcast. How'd you get yep. that one? Well, I think my my friend, colleague, podcast co-host, we talk to college students all day long in our private practices. And the sense of, yeah, no, college is supposed to be great. You know, it's yeah. supposed to be fantastic. And it is obviously in many ways a really fantastic time. But when it's not, obviously, yeah. there's this sense of isolation around feeling not fine in college. And I yeah. think during the pandemic, right, we always had the the memes going around that was in the ether, just like, oh, yeah, I'm fine. Everything's fine. And it was sort of like code for it. None of us are fine. We all have our <laughs> no struggles. It's fine. I know. So we we just figured, hey, college is no exception. And that's how we got the title. College is fine. Everything's fine. So a little bit, of, almost a little bit of tongue in cheek. Yes. Very tongue in cheek. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's what Peter and I were talking about before the show. Peter said, you know, I wonder if there's a little bit of kind of humor woven into that piece. And so hence he is correct. You know, college is not an easy time. It's a it's a time of transition, individuation, differentiation from your family and discovering oneself and actually being on one's own where mom doesn't get you out of bed to go to school. And there's yeah. a lot of uh, independence and a lot of kind of finding yourself and exploring the world. So it's a it's a it's a challenging time, but it's a cool time, you know, to kind of explore oneself. I want to come back into some of the things that, you know, are are inherently part of us growing up in our young adult years, you know, leaving home, those kinds of things, but also just kind of in general, the maturational process. But before we do, I want our listeners to understand just a little bit about you. Sure. We're going to talk about OCD today, anxiety today, exposure therapy today, all the things you guys are doing with Lumate, your podcast, mm-hmm. et cetera. Yep. But tell us a little bit about yourself and what brought you into this field. Well, I don't think it's a big surprise if a psychologist is listening to hear that I was an anxious child. And mm-hmm. there's a term we had in graduate school called me search. It meant oh. that everyone who was in there who was in the anxiety program probably struggled with anxiety at a little point, you know. So sure. it is sort of this inside joke. I think I got into this field because I've always loved working with and being around kids. And eventually as I was older, I included teens and young adults into that, into yeah. that range of feeling like if I could help people get less anxious earlier. Maybe they Mm -hmm. wouldn't have had to have some of the same struggles that I forged through on my own. So Mm -hmm. that's how I got into the field. And I've been just really lucky to have mentors in the field who've given me advice. I'm actually working now with one of those mentors, again, Dr. Anne-Marie Albano, who is the chief medical officer at Lumate. 
So I got into it, though, because I think I just had a way of knowing what it's like to feel anxious myself. And how can I give back to people at a, as early as possible to catch some things where we can? Really good. You know, we, we, we toss terms around sometimes, anxiety, OCD, and we, we use these terms almost kind of playfully sometimes. And, but these are, these are significant things. They're very yeah. treatable things, but they're significant things. So, so as you start out the show today, let's start by developing some clarity around the words that we typically, again, kind of throw around without much thought. So let's start with anxiety. Sure. What's a good working definition of anxiety? Well, I think anxiety and and I think of almost like a like a bell curve a little bit. You know, it's like there's a time when all of us are feeling quite calm all the way to panic, right? And I think there's quite a typical way to feel anxious in a in a way that we all do as humans. This is a helpful emotion to have. I always joke with the people I work with. I'm like, if we didn't have anxiety, we probably yeah. wouldn't have evolved or existed. We'd be like, oh, look at that saber-toothed tiger. Yeah. Coming towards us. Cool, man. Like, yeah. And then no, we're lunch. No. And yeah. then, yeah. Then we're just like, all right, bye. You know, it's like, we didn't evolve from like really laid back cave people. We evolved from people who were paying attention. So I think anxiety is our way, our body's way of saying, pay attention to danger and stay safe. It is good for that reason. Of course, we have evolved now. We are no longer on the planes, but that part of our mind is still primed for danger. So we are more likely to see it maybe in social situations we're kind of looking for it, but when there's not always something to be looking for, we try to find reasons why I feel anxious. So why is that? So there's a lot of different ways to find anxiety. I think anytime we start to feel like we're looking towards the future and are worrying that something isn't going to go well, our body tends to have a bit of a response to that at varying levels. It ramps up into that fight or flight or freeze system of, you know, our heart starts to pay attention and beat a little faster our stomach might feel a little tight, our chest gets heavy, or the breathing gets heavier or harder to come by. So that is anxiety. And I think there's a little bit of our mind that goes with that. This is pay attention. Let's focus in on what's happening here. Where is there some danger? What What is getting in the way for me that I need to challenge? So really back good. in the day, it might have been, you know, a predator. Now it's the SATs. Yeah, sure. You know, I, I really like that. It's, in in fact, at its best, Anxiety is kind of a safety strategy, you know, it's a, it's an early warning system at its best. And often I'll use the definition of, you know, there's a perception of a threat and the perception that I'm not going to be able to handle that threat. And the key word in both of those is kind of what you're inferring here is perception. Yep. It's how I think of it, how I see it, how I define mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it could be real. It could be a real threat. Maybe I have to, you know, maybe naturally I engage in fight, flight, freeze, fade, fawn, you know, those are some of the strategies that I've used when I get into that place when the anxiety can be real, but it's not always real. Sometimes it's just, you know, a deeply etched pattern that maybe early on, or maybe there's something back there in our collective unconscious that kind of comes into our lives with us that can put us at risk for things. When you, when you, when you do kind of explore things with folks, Sarah, what are some of the roots that you find in the development of anxiety? Well, first of all, I want to go back and just laugh a little bit that all of these things start with F. I mean, what if they didn't? <laughs> Sometimes like, freaking fun, things. Freeze. Come on. I'm like, are we just adding? Are we just adding to it? Every but, time we yeah, find a when, word that starts with F, we're like, what's well, that one? I mean, it's just so. No, I just. But, yeah, but, yeah. but you think of it, it's kind of it's actually kind of playful and fun because when you yeah. think about it, the, the fight or flight once upon a time really worked. 
Yeah. You know, you, you got to fight that saber tiger. You got to, you know, you got to, you got to, you got to run from it, or you got to freeze. Right. Ideally, you get paralyzed because of the trauma that's there, and that's what folks do now. They they they, right. they 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 freeze and they don't know how to defend themselves, or they fawn. They become placating. Right. You know, and they begin to take care of the other person, hoping that if I can soothe the beast, right, I'm going to be safe. Or maybe it's all I about fade. survival. Yeah. It's, exactly. So maybe that maybe the child that's in an abusive relationship, in their families, learns to get really small and kind of fade into the background. Sure. So they're not seen and they don't become a target. Right. Absolutely. So we got to keep coming up with some Fs that fit. <laughs> I know. I know. As we evolve, we'll just find more Fs. There Psychologists we go. like to make up words anyway. So I think. So in terms of the, you know, you said that maybe some of the roots, some, roots, some of the roots, that maybe some of the roots. I, I sometimes will call them an echo. I'm like, here we have oh. something that happened at one point for real, but now it's just an echo in your head, and it's coming back. But it's not really the sound. It's just kind of a reverberation of something that happened in the past. I like that. I, you know, I'm a cognitive behavioral therapist, so we don't do a lot of interpretation of things that happened in the past or necessarily think that anxiety has to come from certain places. That said, it can. I mean, certainly people have really difficult or traumatic experiences that lead to a direct fear of something like a dog when they were bitten when they were a child. I know in my world, like it's just a blueprint, you know, they can, the, if you look at the women in my family, it's just handed exactly. down like a nice little baton. Here you go. Here's your anxiety. Yeah. Yep. And here's your anxiety. And you can just sort of see from yeah. grandmother to mother to daughter to now my daughter having, I'm just like, oh, and I'm watching my daughter go through it, going from a confident kid to sort of suddenly starting to feel a bit more aware of her place in this world and, and where she should stand. And I'm like, ah, here, you know, some separation anxiety that was never for it before. I'm like, there it is. It's just that genetic blueprint sort of coming to life. So I think I'm a, you know, the biology shouldn't be overlooked. And then of course we know there are things that start to interact once, if there is that biology there, and then there are behaviors that people can engage in, coping strategies, family messages that can certainly take that and you give bet. it bigger claws. Yeah. What I like that you're saying here is that these things all unknowingly unconsciously can be imprinted or maybe there's mm -hmm. a biological component that gets handed down but mm -hmm. these things become imprinted and we don't even know they're there we just right. act on them that's right. our normal mm -hmm. let's 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 kind of as we define anxiety the way you're doing really clearly here let's also define ocd you know sometimes oh, we yeah. play around oh that's just my ocd you know or, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. there's something significant about that talk about what ocd is and how you define that well, I will say I appreciate you bringing this question up because so many people who struggle with OCD yeah. really feel frustrated when people say, oh, I'm just being so OCD about this. Yeah. They're like, you know, I remember treating the 16-year-old captain of the lacrosse team. No one knew she had OCD. She did a lot of things mentally or she had rituals that were sort of more internal. So you didn't necessarily see them. And her teacher even said it. And she said, it just killed me because I had spent that whole yeah. class trying so hard to even pay attention because of my OCD and yeah. it was draining and she just sort of made it sound like it wasn't a big deal and kind of minimized my symptoms. So I do think it's important for us to pay attention to language. The other thing that I joke around about and kind of geek out about is when people say, oh, my OCD, they're actually talking about more likely obsessive compulsive personality disorder, sort of needing yes. things to be a certain way and kind of wanting yeah. to have things their way and feeling a little like you you want there to be some tidiness or some yeah. rules or some perpendicular lines, right? So yeah. I always joke, I'm like, they're not even using it correctly. And then people are like, Sarah, you just need to stop. Obsessive compulsive disorder is something really specific and quite quirky and unique in the sense that 
O, obsessions, is for intrusive thoughts that are repeated. They typically, they can have some logic to them, but they can be completely illogical. There's a huge range for it, all the way from if I wash my hands more, I won't have as many germs, to Mm -hmm. if I count to 10 in a certain way, my parents won't die in a car accident. So it can really range from the logical to the completely illogical. And it is almost always paired with a behavior or a ritual that is repeated in order to get rid of the anxious thought that is popping up. So, you know, and again, sometimes it's really clear. I have this worry that I'm going to get contamination. So I'm going to come home after the day of work and I'm going to wash my body and, you know, from head to toe in a certain really planful way. Or sometimes it can be something quite off. Like I need to sing a song or, you know, sometimes people Mm -hmm. will worry that they've said a bad word or offended someone. So they'll go into a range Mm -hmm. of prayer. It can look like almost like anything. I mean, OCD really has a wide imagination of ways that it tries to convince people that their thoughts are real and that they have to do something because the thoughts themselves are dangerous. And that is something for people to really understand when they say, oh, my OCD, and I'm just going to tidy something here. We're really talking about things that are repeated in a very specific way to the point where, and they can't stop the ritual until the thought itself is neutralized and sort of detonated. It's always interesting because the thoughts themselves are not bad thoughts. I want my children to be safe. I want to have good hygiene. I don't want to get sick. And those are pretty functional, pretty normal, but they become clinical, something that becomes of, of, of a significant impairment when we are unable to kind of stop it at that. And we it begins to kind of go down that slippery slope and we lose a little bit of control. And the only way to control those thoughts is to, the obsessions, like you said, is to add a compulsion or the behaviors. And it's actually at its very best, that survival piece you talked about before, this doesn't fit with an, another F, but this is a coping strategy, OCD. Well, we it's can't a, use but, it because it doesn't start with F. I'm so sorry. And, I know. Friggin'. Yeah. But the fact is, <laughs> the fact is, it's still a coping strategy. It's for me, the best way I've found to date in my own head, keeping it to myself, and it's usually secret, which makes it even more difficult mm-hmm. to manage my anxiety that is producing an out of control set of thoughts and obsessions that are really hard for me. Yeah. But then it becomes, like you said, it becomes limiting. And it becomes impairing. For example, you said you were working with an athlete that probably Mm -hmm. went through some rituals before. Where does she find herself getting tied up and maybe even some of the things being limiting to her? Well, I can give you a few different examples. But one thing I want to go back to, because I do feel like if, if there's anything that someone listening wants to hear in this podcast, this would be one of the main things, which is we actually all have even quirky, what we might think of upsetting thoughts, dark thoughts. It is not yes. people with OCD who have these thoughts that are clinical and get worse. I mean, yes, it, it is clinical and it can get worse, but we all have these quirky thoughts. And it's True. once I started working with those people who had OCD and I started paying attention, I was like, oh, yeah, there, as an example, I started to notice I was taking the subway a lot. I was living in New York City and I start, I had the thought like, oh my gosh, I could just totally push that guy. He's so close to the thing. Mm-hmm. I could just push him. Mm-hmm. Now, if I had had that thought without working with OCD, I probably wouldn't have even noticed it. I probably just been like, I can push that guy. Okay, on to the next. Let me read my book. You know, is the train coming? But what I noticed is I had the thought and my next thought wasn't, oh my gosh, that thought's really important. Why did I think that? I'm a bad person. That's the difference between people with OCD and people without. We yeah. all have the quirky thoughts, but people with OCD, there's just a part of um, their brain that doesn't just 
send them down the junk aisle, right? That's it says, right. whoa, why'd you think that? Are you a murderer? Do you have homicidal intent? Well, you shouldn't think that again. Maybe you should take a step back from that guy because mm-hmm. you, you know, it's that difference. And so yeah. we have research to show that people, all people have these kind of quirky, dark thoughts, you, me, and it doesn't mean anything except our mind is throwing kind of random thoughts at us all day long. We have like 80 to 90,000 thoughts a day. Some of them are going to get a little weird. (laughs) That's right. Now, when it comes to sort of some of those quirky thoughts, there's, there are themes in OCD. There's sort of different flavors you might have of it. Some people, and I don't want to bore everyone with sort of the different combinations and so on and so forth, but essentially some thoughts have to do, or some themes have to do with aggression, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm a dangerous person in some way. I'm worried that I will become a dangerous person in some way and I will hurt someone. We see that a lot of of students who are having children who struggle with OCD. We have to work a lot with them to still make sure that they're taking care, you know, know that they are able to very safely take care of their child, but sort of, oh my gosh, I am going to be a danger in some way. We have thoughts around scrupulosity, you know, sort of like, am I a good person or a bad person? You know, do I need to pray more? Am I, is there something wrong with my moral code? Because I thought X, Y, and Z. We have thoughts around, you know, I've already mentioned contamination. That's the one I think that gets the most play in the press. So the, you know, those sorts of fears that there's going to be a, something in the ether that's going to cause me harm. And so, so there's, you know, things about cleanliness. There's this kind of almost just a just right feeling. It doesn't always feel like a thought. It's almost like a a burgeoning tension that people feel like I just kind of don't know what it is, but I need to just do this until my body relaxes sort of just so I need to. And and sometimes that's an evenness, right? So they, they Mm. need, if they walk in a door and they kind of accidentally brush their right side, they'll have to walk back through it and Mm brush their left side or sort of an evenness or a symmetry. And certainly there's checking, you know, did I leave the stove on? How many of us have had that conversation? Right. But someone with OCD, there's so much doubt that goes along with it and they really buy into the doubt and they don't really take their own, you know, logical experience of seeing the stove off and then leaving Really good. Somehow that doubt, OCD will be like, are you sure you looked? Maybe right. you looked at the wrong one. There's always room for doubt somewhere. So That's they can right. never feel that certainty. We'll be right back after word from our sponsor. Nearly nine in 10 registered voters believe the nation faces a mental health crisis, according to a new USA Today Suffolk University poll. Americans are more concerned than ever about their mental health. Mental health first aid provides the resources and training to identify, understand, and respond to signs of mental health and substance use challenges. It provides the confidence and skills needed to offer life-saving assistance, and it provides peace of mind. Our experts provide mental health first aid training for adults, teens, caregivers, veterans, law enforcement, EMS, and school faculty. Mental health concerns are on the rise, but evidence-based training through mental health first aid can make a difference. Visit mentalhealthfirstaid.org to find a course near you or email hello at mentalhealthfirstaid.org to schedule a training. Courses are available for individuals, groups, organizations, and companies of all sizes. Visit mentalhealthfirstaid.org and make a difference in your community. I really appreciate you going over these, the idea of aggression, you know, I am or I will, the idea of kind of 
categorically, if you will, around scruples, contamination, harm, mm-hmm. just so or that evenness and kind of the compulsive checking. The, the, these are all kind of some of the main categories. It's very helpful just to name. You know, I know you work with a number of teens and mm-hmm. I know you work with those that are, you know, college years as well. Yep. What is unique about OCD in the teen age years and maybe even in the young adult years, 18 to 22, 24, roughly? What, what do you see in that population? Well, that's when we start to see OCD come about in the course of OCD. It certainly can happen in younger ages, but you most likely are going to start to see OCD come about in the teen and young adult years. Uh, It's outliers for it to happen quite early, although it certainly can. And some, you know, if you think even earlier into toddler years, some of those obsessive rituals are quite developmentally normal, right? So I think that by the time you're a teen, and it's the time when you're going to probably start to notice some of these symptoms come about. It's at a time as well when you're trying to figure out who you are mm. and that there can be a lot of, I mean, don't even get me started on social media. That's a whole other talk. But there can be a lot of assumptions about what's typical and what's atypical yes. as a teen. And so you're building your identity and you're seeing something that for you feels so different than other people, whether you're keeping it a secret or maybe you've told someone or maybe you're a ritual's are noticeable to other people. And so you start to internalize that as a a sense of identity. And in fact, it's not part of someone's identity. The thing that makes them them has nothing to do with their OCD. We all have things that we have about ourselves that don't determine who we are, how we make our decisions, who we love, the kind of the core self of us that might not have anything to do with sort of our best days and our worst days. It's just sort of a stable self. So I think that that's part of it while you're trying to figure out who you are in this world, yes, that this is coming up at the same time can make it feel especially isolating. You know, it is a time maturationally where the developmental tasks are the very things you just described right there. It's, it's, it's appropriate to think about who I am in the world. And as I'm leaving my family, who am I in the world now? And who am I just, you know, in myself? And it's a time of formulating a lot of things. I would love to have you back at some point because it sounds like you got a couple ideas around the impact of social media. And you talk about the role of that, I, I really would. I'd like to have that because mm-hmm. I think that's an incredibly important piece for parents and young people to see and learn about what is going on that they may not be fully clear about the impact of these things and these messages constantly coming in and their impact really of of how we form our identity. But let's let's flag that for another show. Sure. But these ideas here that you know things are forming and you gave some nice tips that parents might be able to see maybe as some, for lack of a better term, kind of some early warning signs so we can mm-hmm. maybe identify mm-hmm. early. Mm-hmm. Can you go back over some things that maybe parents might keep a little bit of an eye out for that would indicate, hey, maybe there's some anxiety here or maybe some OCD type things maybe starting out? Yeah, I think that, let me give sort of two examples, right? Okay. And why some, I think OCDs may be caught more early than others. Let's say you have a kiddo who has some contamination fears. Well, sometimes Mm -hmm. that is something that's actually approved of in the family. I mean, this is a genetic component. So you might have whole families that are like, well, no, of course we need to really watch out for our hygiene. And it's not to say that there isn't a range of people who would really appreciate a certain strategy Mm -hmm. and structure around hygiene and people who don't think about it, you know, even at all. And so, I mean, not to say at all, right, but there's a really wide range of normal for that. And so- it could be that it, as an early sign, just pay attention to, is this part of the family culture or not? So sometimes that's when we don't get to see it. 
until a little bit later when the person leaves and goes to college and their roommates like, what is happening? You know, I will say that there are times though, where it's not as much in the family or we have sort of a genetic component popping up that wasn't as noticeable or the family isn't buying in, but still it is a behavior that's relatively typical that you might see. So somebody is doing the dishes after dinner and making sure they go in the dishwasher the right way. Great. No complaints. <laughs> and so it can feel like, oh, wow, they're just fastidious. You know, maybe yes. the parents might start to use a different term for it. In that instance, I think parents would want to pay attention if their child has a real difficulty changing the routine at all. If you stop them mid-behavior and they cannot stop, if you stop them mid-behavior and they have an emotional reaction or behavioral outburst because of it, well, most people, even if they like things to be a certain way, can stop. They don't get distressed if the ritual or the the habit is stopped midway. They can sort of have an off day of these habits. So that's what I would notice. I think that other ones that we do tend to see earlier when they come up, for instance, are the ones where it does not feel like a, you can put a different term to it. You can't reframe it. So yeah, fastidious versus obsessive Mm -hmm. is one thing. But to, we, you know, I saw a young girl who had the aggressive obsession. She thought she was going to hurt her family. So she started making them hide the knives in the house, like the cutting knives and Mm -hmm. things like that. Well, that's Mm -hmm. hard to sort of say, oh, that's, oh, okay. You know, I, so that we're able to catch that earlier and have them come in earlier. So that is a kind of a range of what you might see. Really good. I, I think that's helpful just to be able to point those things out. So, you know, sometimes we see these things and we just kind of think, well, maybe this is kind of an okay but thing. But when it becomes limiting, when they have a difficult time, maybe shifting sets, you know, kind of moving mm-hmm. or transitioning to something. Or I really like the the piece where you're saying if they get disrupted midstream, mm-hmm. what is their response? Have they got yeah. the ability to self-soothe? Can they modulate that moment? Or be, yeah. are the obsessions so great that they need to continue that ritual in order to feel soothed and okay, safe, whatever it may be. So really helpful. You know, I know that, as I mentioned in the introduction, you are the head of Lumate Academy, Mm -hmm. the training arm of Lumate Health. Tell us a a little bit about Lumate and what you guys are doing there and how you formulated your pillars for clinical treatment. I want to talk about the treatment just a moment, but tell us a little bit about Lumate and the clinical treatment pillars, would you? Well, I always start by talking about Lumate and saying, I said I would never, ever, ever join telehealth. (laughs) It's like under no circumstances. So apparently Lumate is the only telehealth company I would join. And the reason for that is because, first of all, as I mentioned, the person who we call her the godmother, you know, Anna Marie Albano, she's one of my first bosses in the field. She's trained numerous people in CBT, colleagues that I know and trust are there. I'm building this platform so nice. I, that's part of it. But I think even more than that, what they wanted to do is to say, okay, we want to pay attention to the fact that there's a growing need. Again, that sort of, when we were first talking, I said during the pandemic, the yes. world got shaken up like a snow globe and where do the you know snowflakes fall a little bit differently? So many therapists were like, I got to do something in addition to what I'm doing. And for me, right. it was, I am seeing, you know, 15 to 20 clients a week. I've got a waiting list eons long. How can I be part of something that helps more people? And so it was started by people who all had that same idea. We just want to help. Even the business guys have that mission focus. So that's how I just started thinking about it and learning about it and being interested. And then once I saw more about what our clinical chief clinical officer, Dr. Kate McKnight and the crew were creating a training platform for clinicians in the treatment arm where they were getting 
really thorough cognitive behavioral training so that by the time they got their first client, they knew what to do. They were not just that it wasn't just sort of a faceless, nameless company hiring people as, you know, subcontractors. We have our own clinicians. They work full time for us. They are being trained in this model. They have continuing supervision. We hear from them about, and you know, from the clinical team, what kind of yeah. training they need in addition, how can we so create good. something that feels. So it is absolutely something that even though I'm not involved directly with, I don't see clients through Lumate. I still see, you know, through my private practice. Yes, but I don't see clients through them, but I'm always working with the clinical um, leaders and our clinical team to say, how can we make sure they're learning this in a way that feels supportive and also really thorough. You know, if I'm a parent and I'm about to send my teen to somebody that I'm going to see over a screen, like, whoa, you know, I want to, I want to make sure they know what they're doing. That's a hard thing to do. Or if I'm a young adult, I'm in college, I've never done therapy before. I don't know that there's always a good way for people to vet good therapy and understand what it means. I think a lot of times people accept, not necessarily, I mean, sometimes bad therapy, sometimes just fine therapy. And we want them to know that our goal is for them to improve their symptoms and live a bigger, freer life by the time and as quickly as possible. So that's what Lumate does in terms of the treatment. My role is a little different because even though I'm sort of interacting with the training of the clinicians, that's the clinical team They create the treatments. They kind of create what happens in session one versus session 10. They make sure that the clinicians are kind of tracking using, you know, feedback and questionnaires to see are the symptoms improving so we can look at the data too, not just the patient report. That said, so much of what we think of as evidence-based treatment, the meaning it's been vetted in research trials and then shown to be effective in reducing the symptoms that we're treating it takes a long time and a lot of money. (laughs) And in the meantime, we know that we want to try to reach people who might not have access to a clinician in their area, might Mm -hmm. not have the time to engage in weekly therapy, might not buy into the people providing it, depending on where they are and how they've absorbed the messages around mental health treatment. So not only is my goal to really help train the clinical team coming up, but it's also to educate and help and disseminate kind of generalized mental health treatment outside. And so that's where the academy comes in. And, you know, we get to be, you know, we want to look at the data. We want to think about what we're doing very, you know, we're not just going to kind of market something that doesn't work. Mm -hmm. We want to have integrity around that, but we also get to be really creative, think about webinar topics that could be interesting, think about new ways of going into new places and infusing skills and coping strategies there without having to have somebody to sit, you know, in a therapy office for 45 minutes. That's not necessary for everybody. Um, But, you know, this teen mental health epidemic means we got to do something quick. (laughs) We can't wait. Yeah. To figure it out. We can't wait 20 years to figure out what's going on, you know? (laughs) And and, and we don't have to, you know, we we get to strike while the iron's hot. The iron's pretty hot right now. Mm -hmm. You know, you're talking about the goal being to reduce their symptoms, improve their symptoms and Mm -hmm. allowing them to really live a free life, truly mm-hmm. a free life, not a life that's bound or constricted by and limited by and become smaller because of, you know, these these anxieties they might have, maybe even some OCD. We talked earlier about just some definitions of things. We talk about different types of treatment for anxiety mm-hmm. and OCD and just maybe a little blip and a little kind of pithy understanding of these. We yeah. use exposure therapy. We all mm-hmm. can, also can use CBT. 
cognitive mm-hmm. behavioral therapy. Yeah. Talk about each one of those and how those are pillars for treating the anxiety piece, the OCD piece. Let our listeners know about those, would you? Yeah. And I will say that, gosh, there's so many little letters. I think of CBT as a really umbrella term. Cognitive behavioral therapy is what it stands for. And the name, you can hear a little bit about the things that we think are really important. So cognitions, thoughts, how do our thoughts and awareness of our thoughts keep us living towards a more meaningful and rich life or keep us stuck? Are they amplifying an emotion, whether it's anxiety or depression or anger? So paying attention to our thoughts noticing the patterns that we have. And then there's the behaviors, right? So what kind of behaviors are we engaging in that are either allowing us to live a full life or keeping us into a limited scope? And I can just jump in just right here real quick. So something you're saying I think is really important, and I don't think it gets emphasized enough. Everything that we should be doing in life or involving ourselves should be generative. Mm -hmm. This idea that our thoughts, our behaviors... They should all be leading, ideally, they should all be leading us to something that gets us to grow, expand, reach our fullest potential, et cetera, realize our fullest self. And when it doesn't, that's when things begin to kind of become narrow, small again. So I really appreciate what you're saying right here about life should be generative. And if it's not, then we get to examine some things, don't we? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, it's not to say everyone should be like exploring the earth and, you know, some people adventure and growth in that way is one thing. For some people, adventure and growth is insightful and, and it feels more internal. But at least you want to be knowing what your goal is, what your purpose right. is, what you're pursuing. And right. is, are your emotions, your thoughts, your behaviors in pursuit of that? Or are they That's it right there. keeping you stuck? That's right. What What's it in pursuit of? And is it leading in that direction? Exactly mm-hmm. right. So CBT, exposure therapy, these are some of the things that you know, we talk about some treatments that can be very helpful. What do they look like in action? Well, so if CBT is sort of the big umbrella term, and there's all sorts of things that have happened since, there's third wave CBT, and it includes mindfulness. There's dialectical behavior therapy for for the, you know, is very helpful for people who have chronic suicidality or self-harm and emotion dysregulation or, or teens who have several different struggles going on. There's, you know, so it's it's sort of like CBT is kind of hard to encompass because there's so many iterations of it. So when I think though of exposure therapy within that, when I want to talk about what that looks like, because it's actually kind of fascinating. One of the behaviors that we know, like if you think about every emotion that we have, because we evolved with these emotions, right? The the ones that we tend to really have that are trigger happy at times, anxiety or sadness or guilt or anger, we evolved to have these for a reason. And so they're good information. And they tend to come with an action that is paired with them. So yes. if you are, right, if you're anxious and afraid, we have the fight or flight response and that keeps us safe because we're either going to run away from the predator or fight it off. Or we're going to say, because we're smart thinking humans, we could say, oh, I'm going to predict danger and so I'm going to avoid it in the first place. So escaping right. or avoiding are things that we do to keep ourselves mm-hmm. safe. And when the anxiety makes sense, when there's something to be afraid of, the action makes sense. You should escape or avoid it. Same thing with sadness. You know, we tend to withdraw when we're sad. That's okay when we actually need to, uh, you know, regroup, get our strength back. What happens though is when the anxiety is a false alarm and it has not given us accurate information and we sort of Mm. habitually, you know, I talked about those echoes (laughs) or we have habits that are keeping us stuck. That tends to be in the category of us escaping things that are hard for us or avoiding things in the first place. And so our life does become 
much more limited because we're not out there doing things that may make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. What exposure therapy does is it just says, hey, listen, we see this potential. You tell us that you want to do X, Y, and Z. You, we see that our, your thoughts are what's keeping you stuck, your assumptions mm-hmm. about what's going to happen. But yeah, mm-hmm. doing that full-fledged right now might be too hard. What is a roadmap for us to get you there, right? So what is your kind of a list? And we would call it an exposure list or sort of a goals list. Depending on who you're working with, you can get creative, you know. But what is the roadmap for us to get there? And how can I support you or your family support you? But what that means is we're going to make a list of things increasing from kind of doable but not optimal for you. Or, no, I can't even imagine doing that. But gosh, if I could, it'd be cool, right? Right. Asking a girl to prom or something like that. Mm-hmm. And we say, all right. That's stressful, by the way. Is, oh, I mean, I haven't had to do it myself, but I did have a, what are they called? The girls dance where the girl asks the boy. Um, yeah, I had to do one of those. It was, oh, so I felt for all, all the guys who had asked girls prom. But these are the, but, but, but these are the things that, that, that thoughts go into it becomes limiting, becomes very stressful. Yes, and you yes. want to expose these things. So we say, you know, in sequential ways, Uh right? So and so we say, let's make, let's kind of plan this out. You can practice bravery. You know, Mm -hmm. one way to feel brave is to do brave. So how do we can we do brave in a way that feels, you know, palatable to you? How that feels like it's okay for you to do, and as you do brave more so through your actions, then you'll start to internally feel brave. You'll sort of learn that you can handle something on your own. And so exposure therapy is essentially having people do or act out bravery so that they can start to feel it and actually their thoughts actually can start to shift not Mm -hmm. you know we don't wait around for them to feel and get motivated to be brave we say if you do brave and act brave in a way that feels safe at first and you expand on that then you start to actually think brave it can go both ways i love the idea that you don't get brave and courageous before you do something that scares you yeah you bravery and courage comes after the fact that you know what I'm okay. I leaned mm-hmm. into the thing that I was scared most about and I'm all right. And mm-hmm. so that, that, that forces us to challenge the paradigm that we had that says, I didn't think I was going to be okay. But now that you walked through it with me, you join me mm-hmm. and you help me see that I'm actually all right. My paradigm has to change because I get to have a corrective emotional experience based on the data, not being what I think it is. And I'm thinking about, I know we're going to kind of wind down here in a couple of minutes, but I- yep. You talked about working with a lacrosse player early mm-hmm, on, mm-hmm. and I love stories. And kind of give us a sense of kind of where she was at and how you helped her. Yep. Maybe get to a different place by the end of the time with you. Sure. So, I mean, I have so many stories like her. I know I mentioned her specifically. So just without giving away, you know, enough, because I want to also, you know, obviously consider her privacy. But I will say this, no one looking at this kiddo would have assumed she had OCD But once we started to work through what was happening, we realized that just from an early age, even at a young age, she would start to tap out. She had an evenness, sort of a need for symmetry, that just so feeling where she just could. It wasn't like she thought something bad was going to happen if she didn't. It was just an increasing kind of body tension if she didn't tap out something evenly. And for her, it was if a teacher said a certain kind of cadence of talk and ended on a non-even syllable. She would need to say the sentence again in her, with her feet. And you can kind of maybe hear me tapping. She would tap it out so that it ended on the right foot. It ended yeah. on a sort of an even note. And it got to where she would just be doing this essentially all day, every day. And so what ended up happening is that she 
and I would start to <laughs> expose her to, first of all, mostly getting her exposed to the feeling of discomfort, you know, and, and just pointing out, here are all these other ways in lacrosse that you're actually uncomfortable all the time and manage it, where you have, you know, your, your knee might just start to ache, but you still sort of run an extra lap for your team. Like, how do we, how do you already know and work with discomfort and get past it? And then we could start to say, all right, now we're going to actually start to <laughs> lob some uneven things towards you. I'm yes, going to start yes. to have certain phrases that we knew kind of got her even, you know, more so that her teacher might say, and I would just start to pop them into session. And her goal would be to not tap while that happened. That's why it's called exposure for OCD. We would call it exposure. So I exposed her to something difficult and response prevention. She was yes. asked not to engage in the tapping and just to sort of wait it out. And we try to make it playful, right? I, I love to have humor. I think humor is the easiest way to sort of tell anxiety to F off. You know, it's sort of like, yeah. I can't take you seriously if I'm laughing. That's our highest defense mechanism. Right. F off. That's another, that's an F. Yeah. No. See, there you go. <laughs> I coined it. <laughs> Just kidding. So, oh. you know, we would get kind of silly with it. And I would, mm -hmm. I would start to throw out phrases that were uneven, that were sort of, you know, a joke or something irreverent or sarcastic. And this, and then sometimes... With a person's permission, the client or the student, we get parents or teachers, some of whom have purposefully or not even realizing it, been involved in helping with the ritual. We might say, hey, you know, can you stop doing this? So for this, we actually had the teacher kind of coached her to say a few of the phrases in school. And the only people who knew were, you know, me, this person and the and the teacher. So by the end, she was able to get through a day. And and really for her, it was about just feeling less exhausted by the end of the day, yeah. just going to school and listening to the teacher. But certainly other people, you know, it was one family where I worked with someone, kind of that fastidious kid, right? Where they, they sort of thought, well, she just has a certain way she likes to do something. And oh gosh, she's such a, you know, she's just really dysregulated. You know, she, she's, I mean, I'm trying to think of certain terms parents would say, but just like, oh, she's a piece of work. She's a lot to handle because when yeah. she was stopped mid-ritual, she'd have a tantrum. So over time, we worked with the family. And so they started essentially kind of catering to not making her upset. Yes, and, exactly. And feeds right? it, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. It, it so they thought they were helping. Way. So we started yeah. having them. I was like, all right, you're going to mess with her a little bit this week. You know, and she had buy-in and she knew it. And she's just, you know, we tried to, again have a little bit of lightness to it. But I'm like, how many different ways can you mess with her this week and get her get her sort of practice managing her, her stress at home? What's really cool about that, I mean, we look at dysregulation, we look at tantrums, and basically what someone's conveying to us, if we had a subscript, you know, like in a movie, it'd be saying, I, I, I can't manage this moment. I, I can't manage my discomfort. That's what it's saying. Mm -hmm. And so I develop mm -hmm. these rituals, I've developed these behaviors, whatever else it may be. But the heart of it is, I don't know how to manage my discomfort. And when you're mm -hmm. talking about here that I love, it's we might say you're helping them build, you know, affective tolerance. Mm -hmm. Really, I, yep. I like to refer to it as kind of emotional muscle. Yeah. But I can manage these times. I kind of get buffed out of my emotions and I can manage these times, I think, in much more effective, less limiting ways, which yep. is, I think, really where the hope is. Right. You know, I, I, I would love our listeners to be able to follow up with you after sure. our show today and learn more about you, Lumate, the things you're doing. Give us some resources. Would you please, Sarah? The website is the easiest place to find me at lumatehealth.com. And that's where you can find out so much more about Lumate Academy and the treatment I just described. If you are a podcast listener, I would love for you to tune in to yeah. me and my friend, colleague, co-host, partner in crime, Dr. Liz Seidler, where we talk really about four college students, two college students about how to manage sort of the natural highs and lows of, of college life. And that's college is fine. 
well, gosh, it's a long title, but it's collegesfinepodcast.com. Um, oh, and okay. if you just type in college is fine, everything's fine on your Spotify or your Apple you know, podcast, it'll pop right up. Very good. Well, sir, I've really enjoyed our time today. Yeah, and I'd love to have you back and some great topics. Thanks for what you're doing and thanks for joining us today. Sounds great. Thanks for having awesome. me. Awesome. Also want to thank you, our listeners, for dropping by and joining Sarah and me today. It's always great to have you with us. I'd like to remind you that our episode today, as well as an archive of all of our other podcasts and resource materials can be found on our webpage at triadhq.com BHT. Thanks again for being with us on the show and we'll look forward to having you back with us next time on Behavioral Health Today. We appreciate all the support from our community. And if you like our show, one of the best ways you can support it is by giving us a five-star rating and leaving a review. Behavioral Health Today is a podcast part of the Tribe Network, all rights reserved.